Section 22 of the Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Three Commanders by William Giles Kingston. Chapter 16, Part 1. The tornado had been ordered to proceed to Balaklava. She entered that landlocked harbor on the southern end of the Crimea on the evening of the 24th of October. As she was to remain there the whole day of the next day, Jack resolved to take the opportunity of paying a visit to his brother Sydney, and seeing what was going forward before Sebastopol. There was no time to set off that evening. He, however, landed with his second lieutenant and some of his younger officers, including Tom and Archie, to have a look at the country and to engage horses for the next day. Steep hills rose on either side of the harbor, on the right of which the little town was situated, with steep, narrow streets leading down from the water's edge. Above it was a line of defenses garrisoned by the Blue Jackets forming the Naval Brigade and the Marines of the fleet. To the left, across the Cherusines, ran the road of Sebastopol, while directly in front, connected by a gorge with the harbor, was a broad valley called the Southern Valley. Beyond this rose a ridge known as the Causeway Heights, on which were situated six rebouts, garrisoned by the Turks, to whom had been committed what formed the outward defenses of Balaklava. Along this causeway ran the Woronzov Road. At the eastern extremity of the valley were, was a knoll between five and six hundred feet in height, joining the Camera Hills to the right by a neck of high ground. The knoll jutting out over the valley as a promontory does over the sea. This knoll, on which number one redoubt had been thrown up, was called by the alleys Can Roberts Hill. On the western extremity of the valley was the call, or gap, through which the road passed to Sebastopol. Eastward of the Ken Roberts Hill were the village and heights of Camera. Completely overlooking it, on the far side of the Causeway Heights was what was called the North Valley, with a range of heights rising out on it, the opposite side, denominated by the Focaline Hills. Jack and his party, having ascended from Balaklava to the height of St. Elias, could look down into the southern valley, the left of which they saw the tents of the heavy and light cavalry, with their horses picketed about them, while just below them were encamped Sir Colin Campbell's Highlanders. Horses, mules, carts, and vehicles of all sorts were making their way from the harbor along the well-beaten road to the Allied camps. Not a foe was in sight. Some of the officers in command of the Marines and Blue Jackets, who garrisoned the lines extending from St. Elias to the sea, whom Jack met, told him, however, that there were rumors of the Russians not being far off, and that they should not be surprised if they were attacked. You'll lick them, of course, said Tom, but I think they had enough of fighting on the Alma. I'm not so certain of that, was the answer. But Russians are brave fellows, and they would like to drive us into the sea, if they could. After spending some time with his friends, Jack returned on board, having arranged to start at daybreak the next morning. Tom and Archie again accompanied their commander. They turned out before daylight, and Jack, who was anxious to see as much as he could of the operations before Sebastopol, was ready to go on shore directly daybreak. Their horses were sorry steeds, 
but save them fatigue and enable them to get over the ground faster than they could set on foot. Remembering how acceptable were the provisions they had before taken to Sydney, Tom and Archie each carried a couple of baskets full of different articles of provender from which they might also supply themselves when they got hungry. Jack had promised to call upon another officer who had been sleeping on shore in the Marines' quarters and who had undertaken to act as their guide. As they were mounting the hill, the louder thunder of guns broke on their ears. I suppose those were the siege of guns, observed Tom. They begin work pretty early. No, they came from the direction of the Ken Roberts Hill, to the eastward, answered Jack, away on our right. They must be the Turkish guns in the redabouts. They hurried up the height, whence they could look down on the southern valley and across the line of the redoubts held by the Turks. They were quickly joined by Jack's friend, who, riding up, exclaimed, We shall have some warm work before the day is over. Look, look! There come the Russians in great force over those distant heights. They evidently intend to attack the redoubts. Yes, I was sure of it. See, their leading division has already commenced the assault on Ken Roberts Hill. One of the first objects which had caught the eyes of the naval officer was the English cavalry already mounted and drawn up in front of their camps. A general officer accompanied by other horsemen, probably a staff, went galloping by from the direction of the harbor. There goes Lord Cardigan to join the cavalry, observed their friend. He has been sleeping as usual on board his yacht. A pleasant way of campaigning, eh, Rogers? However, he is no carpet king, and if the Russians come into the valley, we shall see what he and his cavalry can do. As far as the eye could reach, Jack saw masses of Russians, some advancing southward, others apparently turning off to the right along the North Valley when they were hidden from sight by the intervening ridge. Besides the Turks, the only troops to oppose them were the cavalry at the west end of the valley, the 93rd Highlanders under Sir Colin Campbell, and the Marines and Naval Brigade on the heights of Balaklava, with a battery of field guns. Some little way from the foot of the hills, and almost directly in front of the gorge leading to the harbor, in which stood the little village of Kedekoi, was a long, low hillock running east and west, and inside it, that is to say, to the south of it, was the highland camp. On this hillock, the gallant 93rd was drawn up. An officer had been observed galloping at full speed towards Sebastopol, evidently to inform the commander-in-chief of the appearance of the foe. Jack at once abandoned all idea of visiting Sydney, as he was sure that the chief part of the fighting, if there was to be a battle, would not be far off. The Russians, who had for some minutes been assaulting the first Turkish battery, now pushed forward in the overwhelming numbers. In vain, the Turks fought to defend the post committed to them. The enemies swarmed over their entrenchments, while at the same time, another equally large body assailed the second redoubt. For some time, the fight raged fiercely. The Turks were defending themselves with their accustomed bravery, a few hundred men against the seemingly countless hordes led to the attack. If they can but hold out to the arrival of the succor Lord Raglan, we'll certainly send them. It will be a great thing, but the odds are fearfully against them, observed Jack. Scarcely had he made the remark when one or two figures were seen leaping over their trenches and descending the hill. More followed, as fast, Tom declared, as sands run out through the hole in the bottom of a bag. And then came others, 
till all the survivors of those who had garrisoned the fort were in full flight. In a few minutes, the Turks in number two battery also taking to flight came scampering down the side of the hill, making their way across the valley. Jack could only hope that the remainder of the batteries might be held till the relief could reach them. As it proved, he was disappointed. Presently, to the Turks and all the other batteries, seeing the fate of their own countrymen, broke away from their posts and, rushing at headlong speed down the hillside, were seen crossing the valley to Balaklava. Those who were escaping from the first two batteries being followed by Cossack cavalry, spearing all that they overtook. Had not the English light cavalry made a demonstration as if about to charge, many more would have been killed. Meanwhile, the Russian artillery poured down upon them the fire of their guns. As they approached, a naval officer who had hurried to the ground did his best to rally them. But though he succeeded with some, nothing could stop the rest till they reached the neighborhood of the harbor. Jack and his party hurried down to assist the officer who, with cheery voice and gestures, was endeavored to rally the Turks and induce them to form up on the right of the Highlanders. Having done all they could, the party rode up to higher ground, whence they could better witness what was going forward. In the far distance, to the north of the coal, Jack could distinguish through his glass a group of officers whom he guessed must be Lord Raglan and his staff, who had hastened up to direct the coming battle. While the heeds of French and English columns were observed, marching from the direction of Sebastopol. Soon after this, Jack and his companions, who were watching the English cavalry, expecting to see some of them sent in pursuit of the Cossacks, greatly to their surprise, observed the whole of them moving to the northward over the ridge till they were lost to sight. Summoned, apparently, by one of the Lord's Raglan's aides-de-camp, thus leaving Balaklava without any other defense, than the Highlanders and the battery of the field guns. At this juncture, a large body of Russian cavalry appeared in the direction of the third and fourth redoubts, having come thus this far up the North Valley. Just then, the English batteries on the edge of the Chirosanese opened up on them. This turned them, and they came moving over the causeway as if about to descend into the South Valley, while the Russian artillery which had advanced over the ridge, opened fire on the Highlanders and Turks, who were posted at the foot of Balaklava Heights. Sir Colin, therefore, ordered them to move back to the foot of a hillock, which they had before crowned, and to lie down under shelter. Directly afterwards, four squadrons of the Russian cavalry detached from the larger mass came shaping their way across the southern valley towards the gorge which led them to the harbor, the defense of which had been confided to the Highlanders, who were now supported by a hundred invalid soldiers, marched up from Balaklava. Directly, the Russian cavalry were seen. The greater number of the Turks, thoroughly disorganized by their previous defeat, again took to flight, and rushed off towards the harbor, shrieking out, Ship! 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 As if their only hope of escaping was to get on board the vessels in the harbor. The Highlanders, who were still lying down, watched them with contemptuous looks, and not a little merriment, as they observed the frightened expressions of their countenances. Within sight, behind them, was the Highlanders' camp, as the terror-stricken Osmanlis were scampering away past it. Some even attempting to find shelter within it, there issued forth a tall figure with a thick stick in hand, who, by her dress, was seen to be a female of Amazonian proportions. 
Shouting loudly in Gaelic, she ordered the fugitive Turks to return to their ranks. But her voice being unheeded, she placed herself before them and attempted to drive them back with her cudgel. Her efforts being still of no avail, were striking at several on the either side. She rushed at a big, burly-looking Turk who was coming headlong towards her and seizing him by his jacket, began belaboring his back and his head with a fury which was likely to prove as effective as the shadow of the enemy from whom he was trying to escape and sending him to enjoy the bliss of paradise. Shouts of laughter burst from her friends in the distance as they witnessed her exploit. The Osmanli, on whom she had seized, roared out for mercy, till at length she let him go, giving him a shove towards the positions he had deserted, while she kept flourishing her club behind him until he returned to his post. Whether or not she added materially to the strength of Sir Colin's force may be doubted, but the incident had a good effect upon her highland countrymen, reminding them that they had not only their own lives to defend, but hers and others in the camp in their rear. In spite of the serious state of affairs, Jack and those around him could not help bursting into fits of laughter, though they themselves were not free from danger. For occasionally, a round shot came flying towards them from the Russian guns, but with not sufficient frequency to make them shift the advantageous ground they occupied for witnessing what was going forward. Sir Colin was now left, exclusive of a small body of Turks who still kept their ground, with scarcely 600 men to defend the approach to Balaklava. The veteran general felt the gravity of the occasion, but his stout heart did not quail for he knew well that the brave men under him would stand firm. Riding down the line, he exclaimed to them, Remember, there is no retreat from here, men. You must die where you stand. Aye, aye, Sir Colin, we'll do that, cried the Highlanders. The four squadrons of Russian cavalry, mounting to not less than 600 men, now approached over the northern side of the valley, making direct for the gorge, apparently ignorant that of a body of English troops were ready to bar their way, and evidently hoping to seize one of the batteries on the side of the passage. Sir Colin allowed them to come along with musket range of a hillock when he gave the word to his Highlanders, who, springing up in an instant afterwards, crowned the whole length of a ridge, forming a line only too deep. Sir Colin, confiding in their muscular power and the nature of the ground they occupied, not deeming it necessary to throw them into a square. When they saw their enemy before them, they exhibited the greatest desire to rush down into the plain and charge the cavalry with their bayonets. 93rd, 93rd, cried the old general fiercely. None of that eagerness. Sir Collins's stern voice checked the men, who now opened their fire. The Russians, evidently taken by surprise, wheeled to the left and swept around apparently intending to attack the Highlanders on the right flank. Immediately, the Grenadier Company of the 93rd brought its left shoulder forward to show a front to the northeast, and pouring in a rattling fire, compelled the Russian squadron again to wheel to the left and retreat much faster than they had come. On this, the English battery opened fire, considerably scattering the horsemen as they galloped back across the valley to the north to join the main body, which was seen coming over the ridge, increasing every moment in size. It looked, indeed, 
more as if the whole surface of the earth was moving, so compact with the dusky mask of the several thousand units which it composed. Onward it advanced, as if about to descend into the southern valley. Now was the Russian general's opportunity. As far as he could see, he only had a weak battery and 600 infantry opposed to his enormous band of horsemen. By making a sudden dash across the valley, he might annihilate the 93rd before the still distant infantry of the Allies could come to Sir Collins's relief. Matters look serious, observed Jack. We can scarcely dare to hope that the Highlanders will be able to withstand the charge of the prodigious body of cavalry. And if they give away, the Russians will quickly be into Balaklava. We ought to be on board to fight the ship or to get her out of the harbor, though I don't like to leave the ground while there is the chance of a turn in the state of affairs. They'll not venture onto it, answered his friend. See, see. As he spoke, the cavalry halted on the side of the hill to the east of number five redoubt. The Russian commander had indeed some reason to hesitate, for besides the English battery posted in his front on the side of Kandoki, which would play upon him as he advanced, he might have seen the leading files of a French column appearing through the call, and which might, before he could overthrow the little band of Highlanders, attack him on the flank. Just then, also Jack distinguished, coming around from the north end of the ridge, several squadrons of English dragoons, their burnished helmets and breastplates glittering brightly in the rays of the sun. These were the Scots Greys, the Enniskillings, and two regiments of dragoon guards. They moved along at some distance from each other, riding carelessly, as if not aware of the near vicinity of the enemy. The rough nature of the ground had hidden the Russians from their view and prevented the latter from seeing them. Scarcely, however, had their leaders caught sight of the foe than their decision was made. While one party came between the two cavalry camps, the larger body formed up to the north of the light cavalry camp, directly in front of the head of the Russian squadron. I do believe our cavalry are going to attack the Russians, exclaimed Jack. No doubt about it, his friend answered. That is General Scarlet at their head with his aide-de-camp. And see, that must be Lord Lucan, who has ridden up to him. What was to be done could only be judged by the movements of the squadrons. About 300 British horsemen, composed of Inniskillings and Scots Greys, were forming a line with as much care as if they were a parade. Another body of cavalry, the Dragoon Guards, were moving to the right, while two others far off, also dragoon guards and royals, formed more to the north. The arrangings were speedily made. Lord Lucan came galloping back towards the Nilskillings, and General Scarlet, accompanied by three other persons on horseback, was seen to place himself at the head of the Scots Greys and a squadron of the Nilskillings. The enemy's cavalry had now halted to the slope of the hill, General Scarlet giving the order to advance, his sword glittering in the rays of the sun. He, with his three companions, dashed forward, followed by the gallant troop of the cavalry, their horses' hoofs shaking the ground as if they rushed towards the enormous body of Russians. They must be swallowed up and annihilated, exclaimed one of Jack's companions. They had no intention 
of letting Russians do that to them, answered Jack, though I fear the general and his comrades will be cut into pieces before the rest of the men take over. There was but little time, however, for making many remarks. Onward at full gallop went that gallant band of horsemen, their leaders still fifty yards in advance, while a shower of bullets poured from the Russian ranks. Every moment is, was expected, that the Russians would charge, but still motionless, they stood awaiting their foe. Now, like a thunderbolt, Scarlet and his three hundred horsemen hurled themselves onto the Russian cavalry, he and his companions still keeping the lead, and appearing like a sharp point of the mighty wedge of a red, which was clearing its onward way amid the dark gray mass of the Russians, the sword of the British troopers flashing as they whirled them left and right, or pointed them at a foe. The clash of steel and the muttered roar of the combatants being heard far away across the valley. On and on went those daring horsemen till the greater number seemed engulfed, though not overwhelmed. For still the red coats and those flashing blades could be seen ever surging onward amid the surrounding mass of gray. The Russians had thrown out a wing on their left flank, and notwithstanding the prowess of the British horsemen in their midst, there was no signs of their giving way. The spectators on the heights watched the combatants with a burning anxiety, expressed by the broken ejaculations, they now and anon uttered. Still the tall horsemen, towering above their dark-coated antagonists, moved here and there, cutting their way as best they could amid the amass, who yielded as they advanced only to close again. Anxiety for the fate of those who had thus hurled themselves amid numberless foes continued to increase when the regiment of Menisklings, dragoons, on the English right went thundering down on the Russian left flank, while the dragoon guards dashed forward to attack their front. The loyals next advanced at the gallop towards the squadron sent out on the Russian right flank, and another regiment of dragoons, which had just appeared on the ground, keeping close under the hill, assailed the enemy on the same flank while numerous other horsemen, among whom was a butcher, in his shirt sleeves and several without helmets or breastplates, were seen galloping up from the camp to join the fight. Scarcely had the last arrived squadron of Aniskelings cast itself the headlong speed on the Russians than their deep-seared ranks began to relax. Many an eye was watching the gallant leader of the charge, who, fighting his way around the right, with a portion of his troopers, at length emerged on the left flank of the Russians, shortly afterwards followed by the colonel of one of the regiments, who immediately ordered the trumpeteer to sound the rally, the other officers also quickly reforming their men. End of section 22